Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. Brought to you by the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing and hosted by Paul Hanley. Welcome back to the Carnegie Endowment's China in the World podcast. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Chen Gang to discuss uh, recent developments in China's domestic and foreign policies. Before diving uh, into our discussion, let me first uh, introduce Chen Gang. Uh, Dr. Chen Gang is Assistant Director and Senior Research Fellow of the East Asia Institute at the National University of Singapore, uh, where I currently am serving as a visiting fellow. Uh, while running our Carnegie Center in Beijing virtually. It's a terrific institute, the East Asia Institute. It's led by uh, Hoffman, the former head of the World Bank office in Beijing and someone I knew in Beijing. And it's been for me a, a real honor uh, to, affiliate, to affiliate myself with, uh, with this uh, terrific organization, to join their regular research discussions and seminars and to collaborate uh, with scholars uh, on research and activity. And, and I think I would say views and perspectives from this increasingly important region of the world are important to understand when examining the issues that uh, we look at at Carnegie China, including China's foreign policies, international role, and the US-China relationship. Given that, I'm delighted uh, that Chang Gang uh, can join the China in the World podcast to share his own perspectives. Chang Gang's been with East Asia Institute since 2007. Uh, in that role, he's been actively following and writing about Chinese politics, foreign policy, environmental, and energy policies. He's widely published on Chinese foreign policy. He's written several books on topics ranging from disaster management in China to China's climate policies. And his research is widely published in internationally recognized journals and publications. He also serves uh, as an advisor to the Singapore government on environmental and energy issues in East Asia. Chungan, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. Thank you, Paul, for having me. Let's uh, kick off just with a sort of a brief kind of overview of, of recent political developments uh, in China that uh, we've all been watching. Of course, last week, uh, all eyes were on the annual meeting between the National People's Congress and the National Committee of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. Uh, the, the combination of those two meetings, also known as the two sessions or the Lianghui, uh, which was held in Beijing. And it came on the heels of a pretty momentous year in Chinese politics. We've had the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party last summer. Uh, we've had Xi Jinping's new common prosperity drive, which has captured the attention of many. And the publication, of course, of the third historical resolution on party history. The two sessions usually is a pretty pro forma event, uh, which culminates in the approval of the annual government work report. Uh, and that outlines, of course, the major goals for economic and social development in China and includes some commentary on diplomatic and military affairs. Let me start out, Chang'an, just to ask you, a keen observer of, uh, of these uh, meetings. Was there anything unexpected this year from your standpoint in the government work report? What were your sort of major takeaways? Yeah, first of all, it seemed to me that actually uh, not much unexpected uh, has happened for these two sessions. But we have to understand that actually uh, these two sessions uh, were held in a very special uh, context. And it is of vital importance for the Communist 
Party and also for Chinese uh, government. Because not only because this year actually the Communist Party is going to hold its 20th Party Congress, at which Xi Jinping will probably secure his uh, third term, uh, but also because I think the Chinese economy and also China's governance has been uh, facing unprecedented headwinds or challenges at the moment. Uh, if we look at the COVID situation on mainland China and also in Hong Kong, we can see that the situation is really, really not optimistic. And this Omicron uh, virus actually is posing unprecedented uh, uh, pandemic control uh, uh, challenges towards the Chinese governance. And also, if we look at the economy, we can also see that this uh, Russia-Ukraine war actually has put uh, additional pressure upon the supply chains, the raw material uh, price hikes, and also disrupt a lot of uh, Chinese uh, economic uh, activities. Mm -hmm. So that's why we see that uh, this year, the Chinese government in its government work report has lowered its expected uh, economic growth target uh, from last year's above uh, 6% to this year's 5.5%. Okay. Uh, even if when the, uh, when the country uh, had secured uh, a 8% uh, growth rate uh, for 2021. So we can see that actually even the atmosphere, if we look at the atmosphere for the two sessions, we can see that it's also quite uh, tense. Um, and most delegates uh, were not willing to talk too much uh, on some uh, sensitive issues. And basically, uh, the two sessions were tightly uh, managed, I would say, uh, by the government. Um, so we can see that this year China is really facing a lot of challenges at a crucial power transition year. Uh, with those headwinds that you describe, which are really quite significant, um, including, of course, COVID and the current Ukraine situation, as you look out to the 20th Party Congress in the fall, um, you know, how do you see the next several months? Um, and then how do you look at sort of the personnel appointments? We heard, of course, recently that Premier Li Keqiang was planning to resign from the premier position, but then there's been some rumors that he could stay on as a member of the Politburo. Not sure what the significance of that is, and I'd like to get your take on that. But as you said, Xi Jinping is, is widely expected to secure a third term um, after you know, the removal of term limits you know, back in 2018. Um, but as you look forward, how do you see this shaping up, both in terms of personnel and the agenda, uh, and uh, the, the party's uh, desire to lay uh, a, a foundation that, 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 that ensures a smooth 20th party Congress? Yeah, I think that's a very good, but also tough question for me, uh, because we know that uh, actually there are a lot of uncertainties, even in the next few months before the uh, party uh, Congress. Uh, in the China watching uh, area, uh, there's a theory that actually China's politics has been institutionalized. But actually for this kind of power uh, transition, there's also there's always some kind of uncertainty and also maybe even risks uh, facing this kind of power transition. I think something that uh, we are certain about, as you said, uh, probably will be Li Keqiang will uh, soon step down as a premier and probably Xi Jinping will secure his third term. But beyond that, I think uh, 
we, we know very little about what will happen at the tw uh, 20th uh, Party Congress. Mm -hmm. But according to our past experience and some of the information released by the government, we can still see some of the, uh, we can still try to speculate what kind of outcomes would come out. First mm -hmm. of all, uh, my understanding that uh, probably at least half of the Politburo members will be reshuffled and replaced by their younger colleagues. And also for the top standing committee, uh, probably the same will happen. Maybe even two thirds of the members may, may leave the top uh, uh, standing committee. Um, who will become uh, Li Keqiang's successor? I think a lot of people are discussing about this issue. Uh, I think probably one of the youngest, one of the three youngest uh, uh, Politburo, stand, uh, Politburo members uh, who were born in the 1960s may become, uh, one of them may become his successor, uh, Hu Chunhua or Ding Xuexiang or Chen Ming'er. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Those yeah. are the names that you hear uh, batted around. And you think that those three uh, have, have potential to replace the standing committee members coming out. You've got Lee, Lee Jianshu and Han Zheng uh, will step down as they're approaching the 68 year retirement age. Um, how do you look at the main political themes of the 20th party Congress shaping up? Uh, and what can we expect to hear in terms of the political agenda that is shaping up for the 20th Party Congress? Yeah, I do not expect that the Communist Party will throw out anything uh, significantly uh, new uh, for the uh, political agenda because most of the policy initiatives uh, of Xi Jinping's time has been uh, released during the past few years. Like what you mentioned just now, the uh, dual circulation uh, and also the common prosperity so I think they are going to consolidate uh, the policy or the policy uh, implementation over those issues. And for mm. China's foreign policy, I think that's something we're looking quite closely at. Um, I think China is at a crossroads and to what, what, to what extent uh, they are going to uh, uh, improve the relationship with the West or how to balance their relationship between Russia and the West will be a huge challenge for the uh, next leadership. Uh, so that's why I think probably on that issue, they may make some kind of uh, changes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Let me, let's focus on those issues you just mentioned. You talked about pr common prosperity. You talked about dual circulation and of course the foreign policy challenges, most notably Ukraine. Um, and I would throw in there the U.S.-China relationship. But first, on uh, common prosperity, uh, we've seen major changes in China's domestic, economic, and uh, social policies uh, included under this banner of common prosperity. We've seen new antitrust laws, data privacy laws, fines for poor treatment of workers. We've seen crackdown on real estate speculation, restrictions for for-profit tutoring and video game. I mean, the list goes on. There's been quite a bit of activity that's sort of captured under that main banner of common prosperity. Do you see all these policies interrelated? And, and do they signal, I think most importantly, do they signal a, a pretty significant shift in China's approach to governance? Definitely. I think all these issues are interrelated. 
And this uh, common prosperity uh, issue actually is not something new, as many people uh, thought, uh, because uh, if we look at the uh, fundamental ideology of the Communist Party, it's part of the uh, ideology. China is still a socialist uh, country uh, ruled by the Communist Party. So uh, there's not uh, much surprise uh, to see that they are emphasizing on the common prosperity uh, issue. But the reason why they threw out this slogan since uh, last year is that I think Xi Jinping wants to pay more attention to, as you said, the crackdown upon the property and the tech rules and also the super rich, the luxurious uh, lifestyle. Uh, as uh, actually, uh, he already claims that the, the Communist Party got the victory over the poverty alleviation. So it's less about the poverty alleviation than the crackdown upon the super rich or the regulation upon the super rich that the Communist Party felt uh, they gradually uh, lost control over. So that's why I think it's also about uh, power consolidation, about the control over the society and economy, and also about the shrink of the uh, disparity. You know, some have said that common prosperity campaign, that, that it heralds a turn away from the era of reform and opening up, almost a new ideological chapter uh, for China. And I heard in an interview Kevin Rudd say once, you know, does, does, it, does it risk China killing, killing the goose that has laid the golden eggs? Um, do you see real risks in this? Do you see it as that that dramatic of a shift? And and if so, uh, are there risks uh, to the continued economic goals of the Chinese Communist Party? I agree with Kevin that actually there's a kind of risk uh, associated with this kind of crackdown, because we know that China is also advocating the free uh, the market economy, and they still need to motivate. Uh, is people to uh, to create, to produce, uh, and to join the market economy. So this kind of crackdown may actually dampen a lot of people's enthusiasm for businesses. Uh, and actually, that's one of the driving forces for the uh, economic miracle for China mm -hmm. for the past three decades. And these days, just now, we, we just mentioned the headwinds for Chinese economy. And if you want, actually, this is also a kind of headwinds uh, for, uh, for the next step uh, economic development. We see actually China's economic growth is decelerating. It's getting slower and slower. So maybe one of the reasons is that not many people really want to take the risks. Yeah. They do not have uh, uh, the animal spirits they used to have in the past three decades. So that may slow down China's economy a little bit. Um, and also we can see that uh, the financial stability also poses kind of challenge towards the governance. These days, mm -hmm. just now we already we've already seen the some kind of crash uh, on the Chinese stock market over the past few days. Yeah. Uh, so we can see that people, especially the rich people, uh, are not very confident about uh, what's going on uh, now uh, for the government. Of course, the government wants to assure that this kind of common prosperity is not about eliminating the rich people. Yeah, you can still get rich, but you have to follow the rule. This is what the government sending the signals. Uh, but 
for other people, whether they really could understand that, they really could believe that, is another matter of fact. Is another matter. Fascinating. You you've uh, you mentioned dual circulation as well, and this is another buzzword that we hear uh, related to China's economic policy. You've written on this topic. Uh, you know, many analysts will say, you know, dual circulation is an effort to, to increase domestic consumption in China, uh, to raise global dependence on China's markets, but also to reduce China's dependence on foreign goods, especially, you know, technologies, choke point technologies like uh, advanced semiconductors. You've written, however, uh, that dual circulation does not necessarily mean that China is trying to prioritize domestic consumption and self-sufficiency at the expense of international trade. Can you explain a little bit how you see this? Yeah, uh, if you allow me, I would say actually this uh, dual circulation is also not something new, uh, just like the co uh, common prosperity is. Uh, actually, uh, this is de facto policy for Chinese governments uh, uh, since the beginning of the reform era. They have been paying attention to both the opening up and also the uh, relying on uh, its own domestic uh, uh, capacities. So, so we can see this actually from China's energy policy, China's agriculture policy, uh, some of other policies as well. They always pay attention to the self-sufficiency issue. So if you want to discuss the climate change issue, I would also say the reason China pays attention to the renewable energy, not only because of the climate change mitigation, but also because they want to rely more on its domestic uh, energy supply. Mm -hmm. But the reason why they proposed this kind of dual circulation uh, during the Lianghui period last year is that they want to show to the outside world, especially to the United States and other Western countries, that I'm not afraid that you are going to decouple uh, if you really cut me off from the rest of the world, I can still rely on myself. So mm -hmm. this is the signal they are going to send. So it's basically, I think it's about yeah. it's something they want to show to the foreigners. It's sort of highlighting dual circulation in a geopolitical context. Uh, as yes, opposed exactly. To the Let's uh, finish up, Chang'an, by talking a little bit about foreign policy, both Ukraine and then a little on U.S.-China relations, because I know you're a keen observer there as well. It, with regard to Ukraine, a number of, of observers in the U.S. And, the, and, and Europe and elsewhere have been quite dismayed, I would say, by China's uh, apparent unwillingness to condemn Russia and its invasion of Ukraine. There's been uh, unverified U.S. intelligence leaks that we've read about that, that says that China has expressed some openness to providing Russia with military and financial assistance. Uh, not sure, you know, what, uh, what that uh, entails, but we'll see how that plays out over the next weeks and months. There's skepticism about China's role in Ukraine in the international con community. Uh, you know, especially given the no limits partnership that that uh, that the two leaders, uh, Xi Jinping and, and Putin, signed on to day before the China China's Olympics, just you know, uh, days before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. How do you see? Uh, how do you uh, understand China's positioning with regard to Ukraine? 
Uh, and, and why is China taking uh, such an approach? And, and what impact do you think this crisis can, would have on China's relations with the world going forward? Yeah, first of all, I think uh, China's stance on the Ukraine or Russian issue actually is also related to China's relationship with the United States. Uh, but I'll talk about this uh, a bit later. Uh, first of all, I think China's position on the uh, Ukraine-Russia uh, issue is that they are trying to be neutral on, this, on the issue. On the one hand, they are not su uh, supporting uh, the West uh, sanctions uh, against uh, Russia. But on the other hand, they are not opening, openly uh, supporting Russia's invasion in Ukraine. So they are trying to be neutral. They want to, uh, I think, uh, uh, maintain a relationship uh, with both sides. Because we have to understand that Ukraine is also an important country along China's Belt and Road. And Ukraine actually has been very active in developing relationship with China over the past three decades. They were giving a lot of technologies, uh, equipment, and also the trade has been developing quite fast. Uh, but for Russia, of course, we know that Putin and Xi Jinping actually are very close uh, friends. And Putin just visited Beijing at the uh, opening of the uh, Beijing Winter Olympics. And the, their relationship is kind of a strategic partnership. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. This word actually means that China pays special attention uh, to the relationship with this kind of country. So that's why I think uh, China will not uh, deviate from this kind of uh, uh, neutrality uh, stance for the moment. But mm. they, are, they also remain flexible. Mm. Yeah. But it's interesting. I mean, you, you, I think you're right in that Chinese leaders see, you know, see their own positioning as neutral. Um, my own sense, especially in the U.S., where I talk to a lot of observers, but also in Europe, is uh, they don't see uh, the China's China's position as neutral. Evan Medeiros, uh, former senior director for Asia under Obama, has described China's position as pro-Russia neutrality. Um, and and I think that uh, you know from a U.S. and European perspective, we see the No Limits Partnership. We see the intelligence leak saying that China may provide weapons and financial support. Uh, Chinese officials have you know voiced opposition to Western sanctions, of course. Um, and we see China echoing Russian propaganda, right? Blaming the conflict more on NATO expansion uh, and accusing the US of hiding biological facilities, weapon, bioweapon facilities in Ukraine. And then of course, Chinese media outlets um, are quite pro-Russian and they censor posts and articles calling for China to distance itself from Russia. So um, China sees itself as neutral, but the rest of the world doesn't see itself as neutral. Is that a problem for China? Yeah, I think probably uh, you are right. If we look at China's domestic propaganda, uh, this is what, uh, what is happening. It's a kind of pro-Russia uh, 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 report every day. So here I'd like to give you a comparison yeah, between China and India. Actually, both countries in terms of foreign policy towards uh, the Ukraine issue are neutral. Yeah, you can see that they both ab abstain uh, and actually they have a strong relationship with both sides. But if we look at the propaganda issue, actually, I also watch the uh, India's uh, uh, TV channel sometimes. We can see that India's domestic reporting is 
more about pro-Ukraine, pro-West. But China's mm -hmm. is totally the opposite. So you, you are right. I think there's still nuance between different kinds of neutrality. Mm, that's fascinating. Chang'an, let's finish up just to talk about U.S.-China relations. And specifically, I want to just talk about something that you've written about uh, lately. I would encourage our listeners to read your writing on U.S.-China uh, in the area of cooperation. Uh, you know, the Biden administration has uh, indicated it wants to make cooperation one aspect of its policy toward China. That, of course, is uh, quite a contrast to the Trump administration, which I think abandoned any notions of cooperation with China. And so that's important in itself. Of course, it's coupled with strategic competition, um, and uh, which, which uh, I think the Chinese believe makes it difficult uh, to cooperate. But in November, we saw a joint declaration in Glasgow on climate change. Uh, and, and some analysts have suggested climate change cooperation is, is probably the only bright spot these days in US-China relationship. You've written, however, that uh, cooperation on climate change could lead to US-China cooperation in other areas. And I wanna get a sense for what you have in mind here. Uh, first of all, I think uh, the door has not been shut for the uh, US-China relationship. Uh, China is still waiting uh, to extend uh, cooperation with the United States on various uh, issues. So climate change, I think, is only one area uh, through which uh, China hopes that actually they can have more cooperation or understanding with the United States. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, uh, the North Korea issue, we know that actually uh, this uh, security nuclear uh, issue uh, relating to Korean uh, Peninsula has not been solved. Uh, so that's why I think China wants to have more dialogue with the United States on the issue. And they can have leverage over the North Korean government. Another issue I'm thinking about is the trade, actually. Uh, actually, China uh, this year, the, during the two sessions, uh, Premier Li Keqiang still mentioned uh, the almost 30% growth for the bilateral trade between China and the United States. So actually, he's also sending signals to the US that actually there was still room for these kind of economic uh, exchanges, as long as U.S. is uh, uh, canceling the uh, trade uh, tariffs, uh, additional tariffs upon Chinese goods. So we can see that there are still a lot of areas. There are still a lot of areas. Uh, and also for the uh, some other international relations, even the Ukraine issue, we can see that actually China is willing to talk to the U.S because they have, they do have the leverage over the Russian government, I think, to some extent. So, but they want some kind of concessions from the US on the issue of trade, for example, or on the geopolitical issues like Taiwan. Well, thank you very much. and appreciate a, a more optimistic perspective in a, in a period of US-China <laughs> relations that is uh, <laughs> quite difficult. Um, but I will note um, in terms of your response there, North Korea was a topic apparently that was discussed in the most recent meeting between Jake Sullivan and Yang Jiechi. Uh, and so given some of the developments in North Korea, uh, I was pleased to see that the two countries raised uh, this issue. Chungang, it has been a, a pleasure talking to you about these issues and I appreciate you sharing your perspectives uh, in the China and the World podcast and 
hope that we can have you back on from time to time to check in with you and see your views and perspectives as things uh, develop. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. And, and uh, thanks to our, our listeners and uh, hope you join the China and the World podcast again soon.